Hey everybody, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast, Working Drummer. We switch things up a bit today and talk drums and drummers with an incredible bass player, David Santos. David has toured and recorded with Billy Joel, John Fogarty, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, the Neville Brothers, Billy Preston, just to name a few. To find out more about this podcast and others, go to workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook forward slash Working Drummer, on Twitter, Working underscore Drummer. You can also find us on iTunes where you can subscribe to the podcast. It will be sent to your smart device where you can either stream it or download it whenever the new episodes come out. There's also a place on iTunes uh, where you can review and rate our podcast. If you like what you hear, you can write something in there. That helps us a ton. Also, coming very soon, we're getting ready to launch a YouTube channel. Uh, Keep in touch with us, and we will let you know as soon as that is ready. So here is David Santos. What's going on? We're in your studio right now. Yes. And uh, what's going on with you these days? Well, this is my home, and in my basement, we have a studio, and it's... uh, about a thousand square feet. It consists of a control room and a tracking room through that window back there. This is the main console, the brain of the whole the whole deal, and it's an analog console made by a company called Toft, and that's Malcolm Toft, who invented the Trident 80B, which is a very well known console that everybody loves to track on, and uh, this is called a Toft A, like the letter A. Yeah. T B. It's kind of a cute little. ATB and he made the ADB back in the day. So this oh, is I his, see. His new ATB. version of the ADB. It's the ATB. Very cool console. Uh, I love the way it sounds. Drums sound great through it. As you can see, it's it's lined up there for the drums all the way on the left side, and it stays dedicated to my 1970 Ludwig kit that's out there. Beautiful black kit. Maybe we can get a picture of that or something. Yeah. And what happened is um, just a few days ago, I finished. This has been. Uh, we were struck by lightning. We were playing a bunch of jazz out here, right? And we had some guys coming in. We had been playing for three days. And uh, on the final day, there was going to be a new crew of guys coming in. And uh, when they showed up, actually prior to them showing up, my engineer came in and fired everything up and said, man, you're... Your left side of your board is out, and a couple channels are out. And I was like, what? Then guys started filtering in, and um, it was during like the beginnings of a session. Oh, no, we had to, no. It went into panic mode, and we, we and it was, they were great players, Keith Carlock, and you know, mm-hmm. cats I know very well, and, and came and did me a solid and played for free because well, we wanted to play. So anyway, they came in and uh, started getting their stuff together, and I'm panicking. <laughs> the board isn't working. Uh, but we got through it on headphones. And it sounds great, you know, the tracks did, but um, we, the monitoring was always bad. We couldn't sit and listen, which kind of ruined the vibe. But anyway, just I just had to spend three grand of hard-earned money fixing it. It was all fried ICs. A uh, guy came in, thank God for this guy, and disassembled the whole thing. We had to take it out, you know, and rip all the cables out from the patch bay, which is very sophisticated patch bay, as you can see, TT bay. And uh, it took him five days from eight in the morning till eight at night. Oh my gosh! And, and he just like was crazy great about it. And so that anyway, this is my home. This is my studio, and we cut out there. And uh, usually, I, I don't really engineer at all. Actually, I I don't like to engineer, so I don't really know how to use my gear. I just 
but you have somebody come in. Yeah, he comes. The same in. person. Lately, it's been the same guy, Dallin yeah. Beck, who I love a lot. So all you drummers out there, get yourself a studio, man. You can, you can Well, and we've talked to some players that have that in their home or starting to build that. And so that's been a topic of conversation and how the landscape has changed so much. Um, studios closing on Music Row and people opening up studios yeah. in their home and coming up with great sounds and, and doing stuff, you know, online. Uh, we talked to Brian Fullen. Uh, his episode came out about three weeks ago, two weeks ago, and he's been working a lot with an Australian producer, cutting drum tracks out of his house. Mm. And it doesn't really matter the distance, whether it's, uh, you know, the next county over or, you know, the other side of the world, it works. Yeah. It's just it really amazing. Does. It's just the time change that you have to deal with. <laughs> well, you mean he does it on Skype? No, well, I, I think if he has to communicate or whatever. But oh, time change. I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah, awake yeah, 12 yeah, hours later. Yeah, I got you. not 5'8". No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, so, David, you're our first bass player that we've talked to. Okay. And uh, it just seems like the natural progression when you're going to talk to somebody other than a drummer for a drumming podcast, this relationship between drums and bass is, it is what it is. It's unique to any other other instrument in uh, a playing situation. So if you could maybe talk a little bit about what you've done in the past. Um, there's been some stuff out that kind of talks about your beginning. I know you're from Tampa. Yes. Originally. Right on. Your brothers were musicians. That's right. You did a little research. You did a little research. Yeah. Did you go uh, straight to New York to study? Well, I mean, how elaborate... live? Do you want me to get? You know, I, let's I keep it we'll, real sharp and short, or I can sharp tell you the and long. short because okay. I got some stuff I want to ask. Okay, uh, the basics of it are: I played six nights a week. They used to call it in uh, Tampa, Florida, and in those disco clubs in the seventies. And I was playing and, and, and just making a living, and uh, lived in uh, an apartment and all that stuff, and had, didn't need a big, uh, large amount of income for that. You know, three hundred dollars a week in those days was pretty good bread, and so I was doing that year in and year out. As soon as you lose a gig, you go find another one. You know, mm -hmm. on the scene there was a scene in Florida for disco, and people used to come around. Jocko was around there, and uh, oh, wow. you know, Will Lee and people mm -hmm. like that from Florida where I lived. So there was this lineage of great bass players and and lots of drummers I, the drummer in the band was Ronaldo Stefanel in this in this one band I was in and he used to play with Archie Bell and the Drells unfortunately he was hit by a car and passed away crossing the street if you can believe that but he was a great drummer and singer and uh, other other drummers uh, that I played with back in those days still still playing Joe Bencomo was a great drummer in the disco scene back then and he went on to do okay moved out to Vegas and did some stuff and you know, but uh, there was a lot of great musicianship in those days. So I moved then from there uh, because it sort of st it was stifling in that that the disco band thing. I played in some jazz groups too. Yeah. I'm a jazz fanatic. I listen all day long to jazz. So I did play in in some jazz groups there. And uh, Kenny Suarez is another great drummer that lives in Tampa. And uh, Robbie Gonzalez, who played with Al Di Miola. And uh, all these great musicians from Florida were, were assembling to play jazz at night. And then uh, I did that until it ran out. You know, every scene sort of, every show closes, as they say. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to Boston when my father passed away to uh, study more jazz. How old were you at this I time? I was uh, 27 already. I was okay. older. Okay. This was in the early 80s mm -hmm. when he died, and I moved there. So then I went and uh, moved to New York. I was only at Berkeley for a, a year. 
I see. And I didn't study a lot. I didn't do any of the classes. I just played in the ensembles because I wanted to read music. And uh, met Ben Porowski on the first day I was there. He's a great drummer. He lives in New York. Matt Rawlings was uh, it was me, Matt Rawlings, and uh, oh wow, and Porowski were in this first ensemble that mm -hmm. I did. He's a lefty drummer. Great band. And uh, it was a huge, big band. Uh, it was like, I don't know, 20 pieces or something. And the first day I walked in there, I couldn't read a note. It's very true. Wow. I couldn't read a note. And uh, I had gone into these uh, ratings systems things where you go and sit and play for a teacher guy. Uh, what do you call those guys that, uh, you know, that organize your schedule for you in, in colleges? Um, oh, um like a counselor? Counselor. Yeah. yeah, I went in with this counselor, and he goes, play. And so I started playing, and I, of course I was a veteran already, right? So right, I, I yeah. played a lot. I was right. 10 years into playing gigs, and I played a lot for him. And uh, and he gave me these ratings, assuming I could read. He gave me sevens, and the highest is 10. Some Nobody gets that ever. Some guys have gotten nine. And then, uh, you know, most most of the monsters, like Vinnie Cayuta, would get like eights, you know. And then I, he gave me sevens. First day of class, I walked into this big band, <laughs> and I couldn't read a note. And the guy goes, oh, and he handed me my charge, like seven pages long. Right. Matt Rawlings was sitting over there, young Matt Rawlings. Yeah. And um, he goes, all right, everybody, uh, it starts with uh, upper edge, left-hand corner, bass solo. And it said it had a Charlie Parker tune, Cheryl, written out. <laughs> it was like, you know, written in treble clef, high up on the bass. And uh, I don't know a lot of bass players that can read treble clef anyway, even veteran like old, like, you know, Nathan East or something have a hard time with that. So I looked at it and the Parowski started time one, two, a one, two, three, and he started playing, you know, time, ding, 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 and and I was like, uh, and, and he pointed at me to start playing, and I, I I just looked at it, and then he stopped the band, and he goes, what's the matter? And I said, oh, um, I can't read that. I just had to fess up. Yeah. You know, and he goes, well, how did you get in my, you, outside? So he marched me outside, <laughs> and he goes, he was mad. Because yeah. these guys are prideful of their band. They want the best band in school. Yeah. And this was a big band. It was a good band. I think it was the Buddy Rich band. So he goes, hey, man, uh, how'd you get in my class? <laughs> I said, man, I signed up for it. And he goes, he goes, uh, you can't read. I said, no, I can't, but I tell you what, it, it, don't kick me out. Please don't kick me out. I, I want to stay in the, in, the, in the class and read yeah. every day because yeah. I'm on my way to New York. Yeah. And then he's like, on your way to New York, I, how are you going to function in the class? I said, man, if you give me that book, I'll take it home, and tomorrow I'll, I'll read it. And he goes, you're going to read that tune tomorrow in class? I said, yeah, give me the book. I'll read it. Yeah. Don't kick me out. Yeah. I need this. And he goes, he's kind of winked, he kind of smiled, he went, okay, but he was not, he right. wasn't happy about it. He yeah. wanted a real great bass player in there, you know? So he, I came back in, he goes, uh, just play time, just play blues, play blues, it was a blues, thank God. And I started walking <laughs> a blues, right? When mm -hmm. one, two, a one, two, three, and I started walking with the, with the drummer, locking in with the drums, listening to that ride cymbal. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm blowing, you know, whatever, and... Uh, I got through the, the thing, took the thing home, stayed up all night, measure by measure, figure it out. Let's see, every good boy does fine. No, no, that's treble club. Bass club, uh, good boys do fine always. Okay, let me see. That's uh, here, and that's here on the bed. And I just shedded until the morning, didn't sleep a wink. And I played that piece and learned learned how it sounded. Yeah. And went in, and he went, you could stay. 
and then he, he always gave me the book. And then you collapsed. And then I collapsed. And then I, I <laughs> and then he kicked me out. No, he, I stayed in the class the whole way, but I was every day running up to guys. Hey, man, what's this rhythm? Oh, wow. Hey, 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 hey. And the guy would be, what? And I'm like, uh, man, what, show me. Show, what, what are these? Like, how do you read that? What is that? Is that a quarter note triplet? What is that? How do you feel a quarter note triplet? And he'd go, mm-hmm. Bop, bop, and, I'd be, and I'd memorize it, and I'd say, mm-hmm. so that sound, mm-hmm. that rhythm mm-hmm. goes with that picture in my brain. Yeah. And then later I'd develop it. At 27 years old. It, yeah. Yeah. In your, but what was it about, like, all of a sudden you had this fire, you're like, I'm going to do this. Uh, and, and you had experience. Did you, was it, was reading just not necessary? In to Florida. Do? No, not in these gigs so I was doing. You didn't have to, didn't have to read. Not really, although when I did play jazz, they'd have the real book out, you know? Right, right. But, uh, you know, those are chord symbols most yeah. of, for bass. You just look at the chords and kind of, and I knew chords, but I never paid much attention to the notes. And then, uh, and then when I, after I stayed in this class and was asking him all these questions, I felt great about my reading uh, by the time it was time to leave. And I said, it's time to go. Moved to New York. And the first day in New York City, I had to read. Like a real serious thing, and I read it down, you know. Yeah. And they remembered me, and uh, I can even trace back lots of my success to that day, you know, to that the the friends I made on that session because I did well. Yeah. And when you're talking about reading, you're talking about reading notes on the page, yeah. not just recognizing chord symbols, recognizing. So that's uh, that that's making a distinction between. Look, I understand the real book, the charts. But we're talking about staff. Yeah. The notes. When I was doing big band stuff, it was like, get your head out of the chart. Really? Look at it. Just go. You know you yeah. know where the hits are. Yeah. Feel it. Stop reading. Oh, Stop. they told you that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because wow. I was sitting there and I was reading at the bar. <laughs> it's like, it's phrase. You know, there's phrases here. There's four eight-bar phrases. And, right. and you just, you got to keep time here. And there ain't nothing here till the end of that. You got to kick this into the next, into the solely section or something like that. I see. Look for the big hits. Look yeah. for the things, like the pictures. Yeah, but, but, but open your eyes, open your ears to what's going on. Because there's, yes. especially in a big band situation, there's still soloing. There's still improvisation that has to happen. You got to have ears. And you can't have it when you're completely obsessed, you know, like that. Yeah, it's reading one measure at a time, so to speak. Right. It's not going to feel good. Yeah, years ago, I moved to Vegas for a very short time. I was in a Latin band playing just pure salsa with a, with a, with a trap kit, but there was also a percussion section. And a lot of that in Florida. And um, there was some great percussionists, man. They were real from, they're from Cuba, you know, so they always played... The different claves, and I learned mm-hmm. the you know the two three and the three two clave. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I know those. Right? Those are the basic ones, right? Mm-hmm. There's the Mexican clave, and then there's the New Orleans clave, and there's all these. There's a lot of different variations of you Son know. clave. Yeah. But the song clave is the original, uh, you know, rumba clave, mm-hmm. and from Cuba. But mm-hmm. as I was saying, the, these uh, these percussionists were playing their rhythms, and I was learning to play a bass figure uh, with them called tumbao, which is like mm-hmm. six eight against four, mm-hmm. sort of ish, you know. Boom, boom. So these these different rhythms, mm-hmm. I was picking up back, you know, in those days in my youth, in, in my early twenties, and um, you know, I learned that and I found that knowing how to play certain rhythms and certain songs without reading 
it was very beneficial because when you're reading, like you said, you're reading the figure, but you should also have some some history to draw on. You should you should have these. Oh, I know how this is supposed to feel. That's a Latin bassline. The guy who wrote that bassline probably doesn't play bass. You know what I'm saying? He was mm. an arranger, yeah. and he probably pl- wrote it in a very. Uh, this, uh, um, he was approximating what he was looking for, mm-hmm. and then, as you mm-hmm. said, as your teacher told you, man, just play, don't read. Yeah. You're reading. Yeah, but yeah. You're, you're making music. It's not the music written out is simply to get you to make the sound. It's it's not. That's it's putting the cart before the horse. You know, you're there to make music. The chart is there to aid us to. Because we don't have this all memorized, and there's stories we hear, you know, bassy drummers that n- couldn't read, and, and and Buddy Rich that couldn't read, you know, drummers I know of that couldn't read, but there are other musicians that couldn't read that you are amazed at. But it, it's it's not about that; it's about what they're making, what they're providing. You know, it depends. You know, there's that's a, that's a tough thing what you're discussing, and this is something that I've had many uh, discussions and arguments actually with people about because. Mm-hmm. There are those in the rock and roll world where, where I've made a living for, I don't know, 20-some, 25 years, touring, whatever, um, that, that don't like reading. They don't like you to read. You mm-hmm. know, there's a stigma, especially rock and roll people. Yeah, yeah. That it's like a thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I, a lot of it stems from, not all of it, but a lot of it stems from their own inadequacy or fear of inadequacy mm-hmm. and the fact that they spent all those years learning to rock and play their rock thing, and they believe that that's the way. Uh, so they are offended by someone, perhaps, who, who reads well. And that's one thing. Two is maybe they, the feel of a reading cat is, can be different if he hasn't done what we're discussing, which is get a lot of history, too, You know, yeah, learning yeah. these Latin rhythms and, sure. and, and old R&B grooves and, mm-hmm. and killer, uh, like, wow, what is that half note trip? What is that? So you're playing, instead of playing, you're playing a half between a triplet and an eighth. Right, right. You know, that Ringo, Steve Jordan, Earl Palmer thing, right? And you can't write that out. You can't write it. It's you got to feel it. Yeah. If you see that eight, if you see swung, you could say swung almost. You know. Is there a bassy swing? Is there this? You know, it's like oh, that really man. tight triplet. Yeah. You know, and it's like that. I guess where I'm coming from is you have this obsession with books and reading and all those things that are so great and so important. But I think sometimes you put so much stock into that that there's less listening that's going on. And so you don't just look at the paper and see swung and play exactly what's on the paper. Unless you're a classical musician where that's essential in your job and your style and interpreting exactly what's written. But I think there's modern popular music, Western music, well, probably all, all, all sorts, that you just can't write it out. It's there isn't notation for like that halfway sloppy swung feel. There isn't notation. You can write bassy swing, you know, dang, 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 that thing as opposed to something else. But there isn't a way to write except the first and the third note of the triplet and say, yeah, well, it's not really, it could not, maybe it's not a triplet, right? Maybe yeah. it's not a dot a quarter eighth, it's in between, right? I know. Ding, 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 accents. Yeah. The different areas of the note. Yeah. Dang, 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 dang. It could be dang, 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 d
And and then Tony Williams would play it like uh, you know he played one way for like a couple of them in a row, and then he'd change it, and then he'd play it the same way for a whole way for a whole measure, like ding ding ding, but then he'd go ding 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 ding, and you get lost as a bass player. Sometimes you're like, uh oh, because. If we're gonna, you want to talk jazz for a second? I sure, man. In in the jazz thing, you know, like uh, the kick drum is not so. It, you started out with the boom, boom, boom on quarter notes, right? Maybe yeah. back in the old, yeah. in the old days. But then it evolved where the kick drum went away, and it was just used for dropping bombs. Boom, you know, and this, the, the real time is up here. Ding, ding, yeah. ding, ding, yeah. ding, 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 ding. Instead of the foot doing that, mm-hmm. because that gets in the way, man. And, and I don't really swing hard with it with a cat is playing four on the floor. I, f- I feel like uh, when we're when we're playing jazz and he's going boom, 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 mm-hmm. boom. It, it's it's disruptive of the pocket, mm-hmm. and he should maybe not. I'm saying not definitely, but maybe just play. You know, I, maybe just ding, 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 boom, ding, 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 boom, ba, boom, ding, ding. Some dropping some bombs, mm-hmm. and and let the foot do the accents, and then the, and then you do on the hi hat the same thing, ding, 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 boom, ba, boom, ding, 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 little things like that. So these are these are uh, these are idiomatic study materials. You have to have gone back and studied Joe Jones, and you have yeah. to go forward yeah. and then, you know and and. and Philly Joe Jones, and then go yeah, right, forward right. and get the yeah. you know Elvin Jones. Yeah, right. <laughs> you got the Jones. I'm Jonesing for. You got a Jones for it. The point I'm making though is that you have to be a historian. You have to study the music and right. hear it in your head. And I think that was kind of my point is is that I think there was an era where their four on the floor was part of the style because of the amplification of instruments, instrumentation, how the bass worked. Uh, with a with a big band and how the drummer was supporting the rhythm section using the kick drum or using the bass drum with the bass player to amplify sound then i think technology comes in changes the landscape you can have a smaller group and more sound then you have the evolution of bebop and how that changes and then of course all those wonderful players that want to bring their influence in and stretch the boundaries I want to move forward. I want to talk about uh, all this commitment to learning and working and all those things. And there's a related story to all this. In this story, I auditioned for Billy Squire, and I learned the shit, the stuff. I learned. Sorry about it. The, it's podcasting. It, say anything okay, you want. Okay. I learned the shit cold, right? I learned it, like wrote it out, you know, like you're not supposed to as we're talking in yeah, rock right. and roll. <laughs> I had every note on the record. Uh, there was six songs to learn. I had everything written because I really wanted that gig and I'm career driven and I'm broke in New York City. And I go in there. I'm, and when you're broke in New York City and it's cold and you can't afford the heat, and it's you know, it's rough, man. You got uh, like some survival stuff going on, right? Yeah. So uh, I, I, had, I went in there. I wanted to nail it. And I, and I did. I nailed it. I mean, really nailed it. And the guitar player, Jeff Golub, who passed away recently, so uh, he he was playing, and we were. Uh, I was nailing everything, and I was uh, sort of, sort of like, kind of like, well, rock guys really like you to like be aggressive and strong, and and maybe get in each other's face with everything, right? You know. And I was aggressive and strong living in New York. Yeah. You know that survival thing. So yeah. I was in his face, like rocking, hey, man, yeah. And uh, he didn't dig that too much, right? <laughs> and anyway, I didn't get the call. Even though I nailed the music, I didn't. And they asked me a few questions afterwards about my personality, about what what I was, what I drank, 
you know, um, do I do a little blow? You know, or do you, uh, what, what is your scene like after the gig? Blah, blah, blah. They wanted to see what my hang sure, was, right? Sure, sure, And uh, I, I failed the test, I guess, you know. Uh, I just was too aggressive, I think, for them. I was I put on a bit of an aggressive energy, mm. and so uh, I waited a few days, you know, by the phone, thinking I was going to get this killer gig, and I didn't get it. Yeah. So I get this phone call from Andy Newmark. Yeah. And he call, and I and he says, uh, I just talked to Gollum, and I said, okay, what happened? And he goes, well, man, they went with another guy, and um, listen, he goes, man, David, you know, you got to be. You got to be more like less Superman, and and more Clark Kent. Interesting. When you do an audition, make some mistakes. You know, <laughs> don't don't uh, don't act like you're there to like show that you nailed everything. And I, you know what? But mm-hmm. I had come up with that whole you know that famous Black Page story of Bozio, yeah. and you, you know I nailed it and all that. Well, in rock and roll, they don't want that. They really want you to to, to don't learn the tunes so well. Almost like just come in and just rough it out and hang with the cats and create play. a vibe. Yeah, create a vibe. Oh man, self-deprecating. You know, like oh, I messed that up. How was that bridge go? Don't fake it. Never be fake. Mm-hmm. But that's an element of truth that we're all involved in is is our insecurity and the fact that we make mistakes and and don't don't put on that you don't make mistakes don't put on that you're so confident and so badass that you're not going to screw up go ahead and screw up and, and ah so what man i missed that kick didn't i and they and then they like they like you it's yeah. like yeah 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 i missed it too and they've been playing it for 20 years <laughs> right right you know you have this assumption that they're they're concerned with everything being nailed right mm-hmm. Like in these bigger arena, like upper, higher echelon things, yeah. the Stones. You wouldn't go in with the, on a Stones audition and nail it. You'd go in and like screw up on purpose almost. Like you want it to be fucked up, right? You say, shit, what is that? How am I going to play this thing, man? I don't know. What are you playing, Keith? I mean, I'm playing kang, kang, kang. At least that's what I played last night. And you just, it gets to another thing. So, you know, you'd be a little looser. So that was that thing about. So I go to this island gig that I was telling you about. This is setting up the story. It's a long story, but whatever. It's going to get faster now. I go to the island, and when I go there, Bobby Chouinard's playing drums, and I've got this animosity towards him because he didn't hire me for yeah, okay. the gig I needed so desperately, right? Yeah. They pushed me out. You're not hip. So that's in my mind. Like I've got this negative energy. So I'm going to prove to him. That I'm a badass and I, and I can play and I can also hang, drink for drink, line for line. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. He showed up at the airport with white shit on his face, right? And I'm like, Bobby, Bobby, Bobby. <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah, smelling of booze, right? Yeah. We got through the thing. We flew to, to Puerto Rico and then we flew over to the Virgin Islands and we, and we got there and we started playing this thing. And I'm hanging and, and we were rooming together and I'm drinking with him and this and that. We're going to play together and I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it in New York through this guy. Through being so great, he's going to talk about me all the time. And I'm so ambitious, right? Because I'm going to make it. Yeah. I yeah. still feel that way. I'm yeah. still going to make it. Yeah. So, uh, okay. Well, it, we didn't, it was oil and water, man. It didn't work out. So, like, I had this book with me. And this is where it's relative to the story that I'm going to tell. The book was called Creative Visualization by Shakti Gawain. Hmm. Write it down, people. It's a great book. It's a short book. It's only that thin, about that long. You know, it's one of those little books. Uh, But it has all these exercises in it and clearing exercises and affirmations and all these different ideas of how you bring your dreams into the forefront of your life through creative visualization. You, You think... 
Mm-hmm. You think of something, you get a mental picture of it, you see yourself that way in the physical plane. It's in your head first, right? You're creatively yeah. visual, visualizing right. what you want manifest in the real world mm-hmm. as a career, as a happiness factor, as a, a world ending world hunger, whatever you want to. You, you see it happening first, and then through this sort of energy in the universe, not to get too cosmic, because I'm talking about blowing alcohol too, but anyway, <laughs> you see it. And then by constantly doing these thoughts, th- thought things, these visualization exercises, you, you bring it forward into all of a sudden you're, you're with the right guy at the right moment. Connecting the dots yeah. from your first vision to... Yes. I see. But getting a good gig, for example, let's say. You want to play with whoever it is you want to play. Tom Petty. Not that that's going to happen because they're never going to break up and no one's going to leave that band. But you know what I'm saying. You, you, uh, yeah, you see sure. the picture of, of like, man, I see myself up there, man, with the with those cats. And that's how I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to replace Steve Ferroni, man, you know, <laughs> which is not going to happen. So forget <laughs> that one. But anyway, so anyway, seriously, though. So I had this book. We were there for a week, and the blow and the alcohol and the, all the all the crazy stuff that was going on was not working. It wasn't working. We weren't. We were like it was like not. We were never going to be friends, right? Yeah. So I woke up every morning, went to the beach, with this book and read it, and I did all the exercises in it, and I was like, I am going to become the best bass player in New York City. I'm going to be the guy that everyone calls, like Will Lee, and um, you know, who's one of my heroes. I just love everything he does, and he's one of the greatest musicians of all time. He can read anything and play anything. And, um, and, I, and I'm going to, that's what I'm going to do when I leave this island. I'm going to know, I'm going to understand what it is I want from my life, how I want to play, uh, the gigs I'm going to get. I'm going to understand how to place myself in the success-oriented circles. I am going to get myself enough money. The first day I get back, I, I want to get a gig that pays $250 a week because my rent was $1,000 a month. I just want to get, I'm going to start with $250 a week. Uh, that's what I need, and then and, and then, then I want to play with Newmark. I want to I want to go and play with gig, gigs with Andy Newmark. That's what I want. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's what I visualized. I saw it in my head. Everything. So I finish up this gig in this horrid situation where it was like, just get me out of here. I How get, long were you down there? For it the was gig? a week. A week. Okay. And I'm doing this every morning right after the third day or so. So yeah, four yeah. four days, solid playing every night. Yeah. And then not bonding with the drummer at all, and then going uh, to my room and reading it some more. I get home. This is no lie. This is crazy. I go right into the to my answering machine and I push play. And the very first message that came up was, "Hey, David, uh, this is uh, Roger Greenwald. Man, I I, uh, I need a bass player. I'm backing up a uh, soap opera person. She's an actress and she's a musician also, and, and also and she uh, needs a bass player. And uh, can you come and audition? So I was. I wrote it and wrote it down. Yes. And then the next one. Andy Newmark. He said, hey, man, Brian Ferry's looking for a bass player. Marcus Miller's leaving. Uh, would you be interested in coming down and playing? I am. I shit you not. Two in a row. Yeah. Those are the things I was visualizing, right? Yes. So I'm, I'm like... Uh, was Andy on that gig? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. He was Brian Ferry's guy okay. for years. Okay. Played on all the records. Was in Roxy Music. That's him on Avalon, one of the greatest records of all uh, time. Okay. For all you drummers, you want to hear a great record? Go buy Roxy Music Avalon and live with it for, you know, I don't know, a couple years. <laughs> Serious business. Okay. So I, uh, I go first to the first audition, and I get the gig. The guy likes me. It's a great band of New York musicians. He takes me for a walk, and he wants to talk money. 
And he goes, listen, man, we can only give you like, you know, like two fifty a week. Is that is that cool? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's exactly cool. <laughs> that's what I've been wanting. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Two fifty a week for a couple of rehearsals, and st- yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Then went to the audition with Brian Ferry. Yeah. And this is the thing. This is the complicated part. Brian Ferry is one of my heroes and had all these monster musicians in the band. You know, like I said, Marcus Miller was playing bass. He left because Sanborn was doing some stuff he was producing at the time. So uh, I went in there with these heavies. And, and I'm like, you know, visualizing like I, like I was, continuing this process. And here's the complicated part because this is the thing about visualization that one, and, and creating your own reality through this concept is that it doesn't always work. So you can't get dark on it, right? You, you yeah. can't, uh, you have yeah. to keep doing it because yeah. you're going to fail sometimes at it. The word fails wrong, but you're going to, it's, you're not going to, it's not going to always work. Maybe it's not the time. Maybe the time's not Maybe yet. the, yeah, maybe what, now you're getting even deeper. Maybe the thing, it could be that it's later, 20 years from now, yeah. it, you're, into, you're yeah. setting up yourself for what you, Sure. but I auditioned for this thing. He called me back four days in a row and I was so excited it was going to happen because the other thing happened yeah. and all this. And I knew it was, I had my visualization technique happening. I went to Radio City where the first gig was uh, every night after rehearsals and visualized myself in there playing with Andy Newmark on drums and all these monsters. And, and I said, uh, and I saw myself loading in. I saw it. I saw it. I saw it. And then I get the call from Andy. Hey, man, he's going with someone else. I saw it go down the toilet. <laughs> but anyway, it didn't happen, right? Yeah. Now back to the ne- the other story. Year, fast forward 10 years of struggling in New York City, still struggling. I go into this uh, uh, doing weddings, you know, doing whatever I have to do, bar gigs where you play blues in clubs all night long. And, and of course, you know, you're, you're tired and miserable all the time because you're spread so thin. Uh, that you're just like, how am I going to make this? And just figuring out ways to to eat right and, and survive and do this thing. And I go, uh, so I go to this wedding gig in a tuxedo. And when I show up, there's a horn section there, and uh, in the horn section was a was a sax player named Mark Rivera, yeah. and he was subbing for another sax player who wasn't there. And uh, I was in the back, you know, sort of getting my sound and. Whatever, and I and I played uh, this line that I I, lo- I love this bass line by uh, Bob Babbitt that was uh, on a Marvin Gaye record called Inner City Blues, and it, it, it's that's kind of a half swung and regular eight mm-hmm. note kind of groove. Mm-hmm. It's kind of weird. It's, uh, it's a little nebulous. Anyway, I, I played boom 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 boom, and I went to hit the you know the treble and change some notes, and, and I turned around and, and, and he was looking at me. He had his horn, you know. He was like, "Wow," because I guess I was in the pocket, man. He felt it, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he smiled, and I and I smiled back. We did the gig. Didn't talk much. Didn't say. I don't think I said two words to him. Yeah. Went, I went to my uh, on with my life, and a couple years went by, and the phone rang one day, and it was him. And he said, "Man, two uh, years. Yeah, yeah. It was a while. I had forgotten all about it. Yeah." And he said, man, do you remember that gig we did? Uh, my name is Mark Rivera. I play sax with Billy Joel. And um, we did a gig, a wedding gig up upstate New York, man, and you were on it. And uh, remember, we, you were playing Inner City Blues, and we smiled at each other. And I said, yes, I do remember. How you doing? He said, great, man. Oh, listen, uh, would you be interested in playing with a band that I'm in? 
that would, we need you right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, John Entwistle is the bass player, mm-hmm. and he's leaving. Yeah, because Ringo, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, my heart's like skipped a beat. Which Ringo? You know? yeah. yeah, who would that be? <laughs> Ringo who? Ringo who? <laughs> because Ringo put this band together, and his daughter's sick. This is how I got the Billy Joel gig. So his daughter's sick. She has a brain tumor. And nobody wants to hear that. You know, I don't want to hear those things. You know, so that's mm-hmm. a bad thing. So, okay. So Ringo had to leave and uh, disbanded the group, but said to everybody, listen, you guys can stay together, you know, whatever, um, but uh, I'm, I'm going to split. And he paid everybody, and it was apparently really – I wasn't involved then, but it's, it was apparently mm-hmm. uh, very amicable. But uh, Entwistle d- didn't want to do it without Ringo. I see. He was just there for Ringo. Yeah. You know, and I get that totally. But it was full of superstars. It had Billy Preston on keyboards and mm. Felix Cavalieri on organ. Yeah. And, and it had, like, all these legends. I mean, Mark Farner from Grand Funk was playing guitar and singing. And Lou Graham and uh, oh, wow. uh, the guy from uh, Grand... F- I mean, from... Uh, what's the name? Bachman Turner Overdrive. Randy Bachman was playing mm-hmm. guitar and singing. And uh, Wendy, my fiance, the person I... My soulmate, was, that's how we met. Oh, awesome. She was in the band. Liberty DeVito was playing drums to, to replace L- Ringo. Yeah, and that was that's the Billy Joel connection. I see. So uh, that's what happened. I said. So he says, "Man, you want to be in this band? We we make good bread, and uh, we go we go around the world." And um, I said, "Yeah." And he goes, uh, "I said, what do I have to do, man? What do I have to do?" I thought there was a catch, you know. <laughs> and he said, "Nothing. Just say yes." And I said, "Yes." So tomorrow morning there was a there was a FedEx. Yeah, and it had the CDs of the music, yeah. and it had a check in it, uh, you know, a decent check. Yeah, really decent. Like I never had money sent to me like that. Wow, it was like seventeen thousand bucks. Jeez, and I was like, "Hamada, hamada!" You know, I was making fifty bucks at a clip. You know. Yeah. So I was like, "Whoa, all right." So uh, next thing I know, I'm in I'm in Nashville. That's where I flew to. And that's why I'm here now. So that that gig changed my life, and then but one day this is how I got the Billy gig. One day I was into the steam room, and we were hanging out, and the one, they're talking over my head behind me, and they're like, you know, hey Billy Joel and Elton, they we're gonna do this big ass tour, man, and um, they, they they later changed the name to uh, what was it, uh, Billy and Elton, face to face, face to face, yeah, a big ass did not make oh, the big cut. ass tour, yeah, it didn't work it out, face to face, yeah, <laughs> I got the gig basically. But you want to know how. So I listened to what they said, and I said, whoa, Billy Joel and Elton, holy cow. That's a big tour. That's a stadium tour. Yeah. That's a stadium tour. That's what I want. So I didn't say anything. I just quietly left the steam room. And hire me. Yeah. See you guys. (laughs) Excuse me. I'm going to... Because he's... Oh, because one of them said... One of them said... uh, Oh yeah, I know, man. But we got to deal with that. They're talking to each other, right? We got to we got to get a bass player. We got to deal with that bass player thing, right? I'm overhearing this eavesdropping. You know, do they know you can hear? There's steam everywhere, and yeah. they're kind of alone, a little bit sort of behind me. Uh, they they pro- maybe they did. I don't know. But I I took that information and I ran to my room and called the concierge. You know, took the quickest shower on, on earth and put my clothes together <laughs> because we had a uh, we had a sound check to deal with at two o'clock, and it was now I don't know maybe it was noon. Yeah. And I was in a town. I was in Minneapolis, 
And I said, uh, I need to uh, go uh, call the concierge. And he says, yes. I said, well, uh, I, listen, man, I need to, a cab in five minutes. And I need him to take me to, please, if you would do the research and tell me the two CD stores in town. There's probably two, mm-hmm. at least two good ones. Mm-hmm. Give me two of them, and, uh, and, and, and I'll and tell the cab driver that I'm, I'm going to need to go to these places, and he'll wait for me, and then take me back. And he goes, okay, got it, done. So I jump in the shower, get out of the shower, dress quickly, run down, there's the cab. Jump in the cab. I said, you know what we're doing? He goes, yeah, I'm taking you to a CD store. I said, yep. And he races off to the first one. I go in. I said, where's your Billy Joel section? And, and your Elton John section. And he goes, well, right over here. He walks me over. And I go, mm-hmm. I just grabbed him. I didn't have time to look through him. I just grabbed every one. Yeah. You know, I had $17,000 in my pocket, man. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I dropped him in the, in the bag. And I go to the, to, the, to the next store and do the same thing. And, then, and, and just for a safe measure, I said to the, the, the guy behind the counter in the second store, uh, what about cassettes? I don't know. Maybe I'm missing something, right? Yeah, yeah we've got some Billy Joel cassettes over. This was, ni- this was in the 90s, you know? Yeah. Mid-90s. So I said, man, man, uh, okay. And I, I loaded up with cassettes and CDs and threw them in this bag. And I didn't care how much the thing. I credit carded it and went back to my room and dumped all these. It was exciting. I dumped them all on the bed. It was like there were like 100 CDs and stuff. And then I went down and made my sound check. Just barely made it. But I made it. And we did it and everything went great. And then I, di- I didn't really talk about it to the guys at all too much. I was sort of a stealth, you know. It was this get the job done man mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. what i mean get that gig and visualizing right. it right and i'm gonna get that gig you're doing a little bit more than visualizing practicing some, yeah i went home and i made myself charts of everything which was, uh, i wrote out every note like i did with the billy squire thing mm-hmm. it didn't work for me but i stayed with that concept because I think it's a good thing to know what Doug Stegmeyer was playing on bass on those songs. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing to know every note, every nuance of the thing. Mm-hmm. And then do it your way. But you, you really, you know, a guy like Billy Joel, you know, they, they know what, what, what was played. You know what I mean? There was a history there. Those guys knew what they were playing with each other. So for you to just pretend like you're going to come in and do your thing on the gig, uh, that's not the way to do it. Mm-hmm. You, you, have to, you have to play what that guy played. Mm-hmm. Basically, mm-hmm. you're honoring, you're paying homage to this bass player right. who's created this magnificent body of work. Right. And uh, for you to ignore it and, and, and as though your thing is just as hip, it may be, but you're not being paid to be hip. You're being paid to represent this mega massive sound for you know a hundred thousand people so you i knew this now and i had to learn those tunes and i did mm-hmm. and i it took me a year and i was ho- i was banking on the fact that as time passed the stars would align through my creative visualization and i would be, as as we've discussed because i grew to understand that mm-hmm. that uh that as i continued to believe that it was going to happen they would like have some stalling thing that might ha- might happen that the tour would be backed up a couple months or six months or even a year and maybe Elton would be too busy and this would happen. So I was confident that it was going to work out. And I learned every day. I get up in the morning and I put on my, my music and drink my coffee and start charting. I had a book that thick of bass transcriptions of Doug Stegmeyer. Were you learning Elton songs too? As yeah, well? I did that okay. too, just to back it up, just in case. Yeah, I had no idea what the what the concept was. If I was going to be needed, they had a great bass player, Bob Birch. Yeah, who's no longer with us, but uh, he, uh, I, 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 they, I knew that there would be a moment where I'd have to play some Elton John tunes, even at a sound check. I knew. 
Mm-hmm. And how did I know? I just knew. I just knew that, uh, you know, one day I'd be playing and so, and, he, and he would want to play something and Bob maybe was in the bathroom or something and I, I'd want to play your song with him or sorry seems to be the hardest word or, or anything, you know. And I knew it yeah. instinctively through this visualization and through study. Yeah. And then I uh, learned them all just in case. And sure enough, one day I had to play uh, a couple of, of Elton tunes, you know. <laughs> And uh, on stage, live, in a big stadium, you know, Billy just wanted to play your song, and he called it, and we did it, stuff like that. But so I was ready. So uh, the point is, that this, this is not about me, really. This is about all you drummers and people listening to this idea that's why I told the first story of, uh, you know, you may have failures or you might look for a certain thing that you've been dreaming about. And you think that the first thing that you jump into that's going to be it, that you don't get, uh, is going to be a downer for you and throw you off your game and maybe move you like, you know, or nothing's going to come anymore. I blew it. Oh, my God, my career is over or whatever. Yeah. You know, I don't know how to do this. I'm doing it wrong. I'll just play bars. I'm just a bar guy. Any of that crazy, those doubts that come in. That's not true. That's not true because you can keep reinventing and you can keep re-visualizing mm-hmm. And then you, you get one, you snag one, man. It, like it just happens. And then I went from there to John Fogarty, and then from there to Crosby, Stills and Nash, and then back to Fogarty. Played with him for about ten, about thirteen years. Yeah. And then uh, I did the Neville Brothers in there somewhere. You uh-huh. know, with the, that was about a year long thing. Mm-hmm. These things they connect, you know. Right. Right. So. All that preparation, there's a gig that came up. It was the Storytellers, VH1 Storytellers thing with Billy. And this was the first time you met Billy. Okay. So tell me about that. All that work. How long had you been shedding that material? A year. A year. Okay. And then you get the call. Hey, come out and do this gig. It's Storytellers thing. Exactly. You might play a few songs here or there. But. No, it was very specific. It wasn't really loose at all. These guys, when they do okay. these things, it's really, really on the money, man. There's no room for any ex- extra, you know, don't do it your way shit. It's like, okay. They said, he said, look, uh, it was the manager. He called yeah. me. You come highly recommended, he said. And I said, I do. He goes, yes, uh, Liberty DeVito and Mark Rivera both recommended you and said that you'd be good for this and we need a bass player to come in do a music video mm-hmm. do the david letterman show and do storytellers which is a television show mm-hmm. where you will be it's a, it's a vh1 thing you'll be on camera playing with billy joel uh five songs okay and we're gonna send you those five songs yeah and uh, you want to talk money i said no nah, it doesn't matter don't worry about it I'm down with whatever it is. <laughs> $250 a week. <laughs> no, I didn't. Visu- I should have visualized higher. higher. Twenty. No, seriously, I didn't say that really. I'm just joking. I was being sarcastic. I, of course, we talked money and it was ridiculous. So anyway, the thing is, I flew there. Now, remind you, I've been learning all these songs, as you know, guys mm-hmm. and girls. Girl drummers. I love girl drummers. There's a girl drummer here in town that's really great. You should check her out. What? Fanning. Her name is Fanning. Okay. But uh, so anyway, the the uh, this is uh, this is another part of that visualization concept because I knew there was going to come a time when I'd meet Billy Joel 
and I would meet him and play with him. And I researched him. I, I learned about him and what his sensibilities are. And I checked out his interviews and his concepts and how he, what kind of conversationalist he is. Not that I was going to fake my conversation with him, but I just to know what kind of a guy he was, you know, just to mm-hmm. sort of understand Billy Joel a little bit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the rest of them. They're New Yorkers, you know? Yeah. They're hardcore New Yorkers. All of them. It's a different mentality living in New York. I mean, it's edgy. Um, it's abrupt. It's rude in a great way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like blunt. You say shit right off the bat, boom, and it like yeah. it means something. Yeah. And you don't want to have to say it again. Like I was going to a toll booth one time, and the guy went, I said, um, can I, you know, when I first <laughs> moved there, uh, can I, I guess I need change for this. You know, and the guy went, hey, he was a cop, you know. Hey, put some bass in your voice. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, I need to change right away. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I drove on. So, you know, that's you get snapped right into the rhythm of it, right? You know, when you live there. But I wasn't living there, really. You know, I mean, it was like sort of like a beginning for me, kind of. And I was just sort of like, okay, what do I do? So um, when I met Billy, he walked up to me and he goes, you know my music? And I went, that's the first thing he said to me. Yeah. They said, David, Billy. And he was in a hurry. He was dressed and ready to do his thing. It was a yeah. big deal for him yeah. because he hadn't done anything in a while. And he was coming out. And there was a lot of people there. It was the Sony Studios, right? And uh, where they make that thing. I don't even know. Is it still on? Uh, storage? I don't. Probably I, not. I don't know. Honestly. So he goes, uh, you know my music? He, is yeah. it still on? That's all right. Yeah. So he, I, I said, yes, I do. Yeah. And uh, he was considering his music the most important thing. Yeah. Like, you know, how you doing, man? But the most important thing is, do you know my music? He didn't say, yeah. hey, man, how you doing? Yeah, welcome to my band. He just said, do you know my music? And I said, yes, confident. I yeah. was nervous, I got to admit sure, it. Sure, sure. And, uh, uh, but I was confident at the same time. There's a myriad of, 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 of emotional things going on at all times in everything in life, but right. especially in the big time rock and roll game, because you're lucky to land one, you know? Mm-hmm. You get one of those, mm-hmm. you, you know, you, you got a career thing kind of going, right? Right. So you don't you don't want to screw up. Uh, so you don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't want to, uh, you know. But you don't want to be fake. So it's a delicate balance. You don't want to be like this phony ass guy that's saying all kinds of butter up bullshit. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? So you just yeah. say like, get right to the point with right. people, right? Right. So um, he goes, you know my music, and I said yes. Mm-hmm. And he goes, okay. He sized me up and walked away. Yeah. And I'm like. Okay, good. So I'm, I guess I'm just ready now. Let me see my music. So then this guy comes over. He's got the little clipboard, you know, the thing that goes, and eh, action, that guy, right? Yeah. And he comes over and he goes, okay, look. And he's busy too. And they're moving fast. As in, in, the, in New York, you've got to move fast and do things now and get it right now. Mm-hmm. Right? No more goofing around. Like, let's, let's, okay, we're going to cut this thing now. It's live TV. Yeah. And he comes over. He goes, okay, uh, Santos, you got his book. I go, yeah. He goes, okay, uh, all right, this is what I want you to do. You see this mark right here on the floor here? I go, yeah. He goes, okay, what I want you to do is you're going to walk, follow that land, that, that uh, masking tape, okay, like that, and walk up and pick up your bass and put it on. I'm going to be filming you. That's your shot there, and this is Billy's. This is where Billy's sitting right here. And you, this camera's, that's your camera, all right? So you're going to come, and you're going to follow the line, and you pick up the bass. We'll probably film you. And I'm like, okay. And he goes, then put, put your bass on. Take your mark. And it was two little you know, masking tape X's where I'm supposed to stand, straddle with my feet, and, mm-hmm. and then I'm facing Billy's back. Billy's playing piano, and um, I'm, I'm there, and Liberty's over there. 
So it's time to now uh, get get this really sharp, you know, and make sure I handle it right. And he says, uh, so, so what you're going to do is you're going to play Italian Restaurant. That's the first song. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay. He's looking at the book. And he goes, and then you're going to take your... He's the director, right? Yeah. You're going to take your bass and put it on this stand right there. He points to it. It's very specific. Yeah. And I'm looking at him. Yeah. And he goes, okay. And then you're going to walk off and follow the thing. See that curtain over there? You're going to go behind that curtain. And then Billy's going to field questions. Yeah. And then they're going to, someone's going to ask him a question. He's going to answer. He's going to do a, question, a Q&A thing. And then, then, and then I'm going to cue you. So I want you to keep an eye on me from behind the curtain. I'm going to cue you like this, and then you come back out. And then there'll be applause, and we'll shoot you, right? This is live TV. We're going to edit it a little bit, but most of it's going to be live. This is, this is a little editing process. But you, you understand you got to get it right. I said, yeah. I, I got it. Yeah, he goes, okay, what are you going to do? <laughs> I said, I'm going to walk out. I'm going to follow the thing. I'm going to pick up my bass. I'm going to put it on, and then we're going to play Italian restaurant. And then I'm going to put it down. And walk off, and Billy's going to do some question and answer stuff. I'm going to watch you. You're going to cue me. I'm going to come back out, and we're going to play the next one. Right. He goes, good, done with you. Just like Bill, you know my music, and done. So then I'm like, okay, he's <laughs> on to the next thing. These guys are busy. Yeah, right. He's got to rope it in, man. Yeah. Then he went to the next guy. He's talking yeah. to him about it all, and they're all right. organizing it, right? You don't know this stuff clairvoyantly. you got to be taught and told sure, sure. how to handle a TV He's like, thing. like, oh, shit, musicians, man. Okay, let's make sure we get these guys yeah, know these what's going on. Yeah, these guys are probably high. <laughs> <laughs> so here we go. I'm nervous. He goes, okay, man. And I'm back in the back behind the curtain, Liberty and myself. Liberty and I kind of goofed around a little bit. We, we have fun together. We're good friends. So we're back there behind the curtain, and we're ready to go. And it's like, okay, and action, the guy bang with the thing, and we roll out, and then clapping, and then I go and I pick up my bass, and there's Billy, and I've never played with him before. I've only said two words to him, you know, yes I do, or whatever it was, yes, one word, and uh, and he goes, uh, he starts playing Italian restaurant like he's played it a billion times, right? Right, you know, that right. Intro and a bottle of red, and I'm and I, but I know all of this because what I've been practicing for what a year, a year. yeah. See, so I know every song. There'll be a test at the end of this conversation. <laughs> There's not just five songs that I learned. You see, I knew 200. That's yeah. the thing. Yeah. This right. is the odd thing about it. I knew all this stuff. It's in my brain, and I'm sharp with it because I've been doing it every day. Yeah. It's not like, like I learned it a long time ago. I'm still working on it. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. ready. Prep, pre- pre- uh, what's the Boy Scouts thing? When Always be prepared. Be prepared. Yeah. And when prep preparedness meets opportunity, yeah. that's success. Yeah. So be prepared, work hard, learn your stuff, learn what it is you want to do, learn, learn the things that will get you to where you think you want to do because you've visualized it and you've read right. about it and you've done your homework. Right. And then you, did, you fo- followed the lineage even further back and you looked, you looked at how other guys who were involved with this guy and these people did it and so, then learn, be part of the, the tribe. And when Billy Joel approached you and said, do you know my music, you weren't surprised by that question you knew you knew about him you knew his personality you knew enough to know that this isn't odd for him to approach me and not say hi how you doing this is this seems right yeah this is who he is so tell me about there was something that happened the interchange with the audience where they wanted to find out hey can you play this song can you play that song and it kind of went off script oh yeah 
Oh yeah, well that that's uh, yeah. Okay, so we did what what was we were told to do, and this guy is like really watching me, man. He's like he's he's so hunkered the down. Yeah, he he yeah. knows I'm gonna screw it up somehow. You know <laughs> what I mean? But he's I can tell he's watching me like making sure I'm doing everything right. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm kind of nodding in approval, and then he's on kind of. And these guys are together, guys, you know, so they know how to put this together. And he wants to make sure that I don't like trip and fall or do some stupid shit. So, anyway, we go behind the thing, Billy's fielding questions. And some guy, Billy, and he goes, Yeah, he says, um, How did you write Summer Highland Falls? Which is an odd tune. It's like in a, it's not one of the ones he does live, right? Mm-hmm. It's on an album that's a obs- little more obscure and it's a really great tune. And it's got this incredible piano part. So uh, he says, um, well, uh, Summer Island Falls, wow. Oh, uh, well, and he starts kind of fiddling with it a little bit, tinkling around. Now, now, mind you, I know it. It's one of the ones I learned of the 200. Yeah. So Billy says, uh, man, if I had a bass player that knew it, uh, I could do it because it's got this left hand thing that's moving up in fourths, and then it's got this right hand thing that's kind of coming, is descending like a waterfall, Summer Island Falls. I was feeling very schizophrenic at the time, but I, I, it's difficult to play because it takes a little bit of mental stuff, and, and he's kind of screwing up because I, I, I'd play it if I knew if I had a bass player that knew it. But and he wanted to fluff it off and just go on to the next question, right? And, and I'm back there, and I go, I go, uh, I know it, Liberty. And Liberty's watching with me for the cues, too, you know, to walk yeah. out. And, and he goes, you know it. That's my Liberty to be <laughs> You know it. I said, yeah, I know it. He goes, I know it, too. I played on it. And he pushed me like a crazy man <laughs> out into the field, out into the game, the man. The director's boom, freaking boom, out. And the director is just totally freaking out. Like, nope, fingers, like, across the neck, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Get back. Get back. He's almost stomping, you know, like. Yeah. And uh, and he said, and, and I go, and I go, I look at him. Screw him. This is rock and roll, man. I'm getting this gig. I go right to my base and I pick it up. And I'm like, you know what, man? Fuck it. I'm. How many chances do I have to do this? I'm not gonna follow the director. Yeah. Man, yeah. Liberty's ready to play. We're playing. Yeah. And Liberty, Billy had no no clue. He he saw all this mystery kind of like yeah. weird thing yeah. developing. Yeah. He, t- he turned around and he went. Oh, you know what? I said, oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, Billy, I know all your music. (laughs) He went, what? I said, all of it. He goes, stay right here. That opened up a whole uh, thing for him. Mm -hmm. We did three episodes instead of one. We played like forty songs. I'm not. I'm not exaggerating. Holy moly! We just kept playing. He just. He's, he loves to play. Yeah. I gotta say that about Billy Joel. Yeah. So. We did the whole. We, you know, we, we we played that song and it went into another. One and another. He told me to stay there. And the, the director just was like, you know, stomping around because it wasn't going to be his way anymore. It was now Billy's way. And Billy was like, yeah. I'm doing it this way. Yeah. I like this guy and I like what's going on here. I like awesome. the fact that I can play my music. And we did yeah. it. So as soon as we finished the fortieth tune. He jumped up and ran by me and slapped me five. Bam! You know, he's got five people around him, and they're running here, there, and he ran, buddy, he slapped me five and ran outside, and he was mm-hmm. gone in a limo in 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Then it was like, now what? And I milled around a little bit, everybody was laughing about it, and then I went, went to my room and called Wendy and told her how great it went, and then went home. It's not like I got the gig right there, you know? 
mm-hmm. but I wanted it. Yeah. And so a little time passed, and boom, the phone call. Billy mm-hmm. liked you. He's doing a tour with Elton, and, 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 and it's going to be a big deal, and would you like to come and play? Yeah. And I said, yeah. Yeah. And it's going to be a year and a half. It was a long tour. It was the Billy Joel band, and we would come out and just like, completely like destroy all organic material. We would just like come out and like rock like maniacs, and then because we, we were those New York guys are competitive like that. And then the and then the uh, Elton John uh, thing would happen, and um, the whole band would come out. Their whole band. So there were two entire different two bands. entire different bands. Then at the I end of the night, now. check this out: both bands would play. Okay. Like there's like 20 people on stage. Two bass players. I used to just dance. I just like say, Bob, you got it, man. <laughs> we would play stuff like you know, like Little Richard, which you have to know, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and 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 here's the thing about Billy's band is those guys like to play like at Soundcheck, or they did back then. I don't know what it's like now, but but back in those days, they would like to play at Soundcheck. And all kinds of stuff, but no Billy Joel songs. Billy wants to play uh, Hendrix, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, OJ's, you know, Stones. Yeah, he wants to play rock and roll music, right? And mm-hmm. and so we would play those things. So uh, you know, I would, I was, uh, man, I got to learn all the stuff that Billy Joel and those guys like to play. Zeppelin, mm-hmm. they used to like play a lot of Zeppelin tunes, believe it or not, and then like. Just the strangest obscure tunes, uh, uh, "Salty Dog" by Procol Harum. They'd call that. I'm like, I don't know it. So you know, you got to play with these guys. They right. want to play. Sure. And sure. So you got to know history. You know, figure out what it is that the people you're playing with used to listen to and how they grew up. You know, you're going to play with John Coltrane. You you, you want to know what he was digging when he was coming up, mm-hmm. right? So learn mm-hmm. some of it too. You're going to play with. Uh, some new guy that's on the scene, Jack. What's the guy? Jack White. Yeah. You know, you learn what it, what his re, his retro root is, and and learn some of it. He might like Howlin' oh, Wolf, so sure. learn thirty yeah. Howlin' Wolf tunes. Yeah. So if he plays a Howlin' Wolf tune on the at Soundcheck, you you play the correct feel and thing. You know, you know, you're just not like going. Oh, I wonder what I would play on a Howlin' Wolf tune when Jack White play. You go. Oh, he's playing yeah. Highway Forty Nine, man. Mm-hmm. Well, Fogarty used to turn around and play a Freddie King instrumental. And I just go, I know it because I know that you listen to all the old blues shit. So I went and studied it all. I want to talk about three iconic drummers that you worked with. Obviously, Liberty. Um, and then uh, for uh, uh, over a decade, Kenny Arnoff yeah. with Fogarty. 14, 14, 14 years. years. Um, also, um, over the years, you've worked with Cindy Blackman Santana. Yes. Um, so, could you quickly address kind of how you approach those three different drummers? Mm. And uh, does it affect the way you play, the way you approach? Have you guys played some of the same songs with some of these different players? Or, you know, good I don't questions. know. Very good questions. Just kind of what your okay. take is. On uh, uh, my take on the three different drummers. That's yeah. the question. Uh, Which, as a drummer... We just see them. Oh, awesome, great, killer. Ah, love you all. Uh, okay, Cindy Blackman. Let's talk about her. Cindy Blackman Santana, married to Carlos Santana. Uh, when I first met her, she wasn't, mm-hmm. and she was just Cindy Blackman. And then I saw that happen, and it was, it was very wonderful because I love Cindy, and uh, I consider her a very dear friend, a close, very close friend. Mm-hmm. And I was, I'm very happy for her that she found someone that she loves. Mm-hmm. Regardless of if it's a famous person or whatever, she found somebody that she loves, and that's wonderful, and I'm thrilled to death. So about her playing and working with her, uh, Cindy is a uh, she's a jazz drummer. I know. 
She really yeah. is. And and I and I you know, a lot of people will discuss her in terms of Tony Williams because she loves Tony Williams and uh, has even done a a record a tribute to Tony. Yeah. And a band called Another Lifetime, which I played on one of her records. Oh wow. That, and, and, yeah. And um uh she is a Tony Williams fan and uh no no different from the fact that that I'm a James Jamerson fan or or you know a Paul McCartney fan it doesn't mean that I copy those guys or play like them yeah uh, they their inf- their influence is shown on me and I play lines that mm-hmm. if I'm on a session someone says to me hey can you come up with a thing here and I go oh it'd be like a Jamerson thing maybe you know I'm quote from that and then I know that language because of my studies. Mm, right, right, Or right. McCartney will maybe play a certain way, mm. slides mm-hmm. and beautiful melodies in a contrapuntal way. Well, drums are the same way. Obviously, you drummers know this. And Cindy has studied Tony a lot. She's got the vocabulary. You can hear it and you can see it. Uh, almost visually for me, I see Tony in her playing almost more than I hear it, especially the way she two hands hits. I mean... It, Anyways. No, please continue. I, I know what you're saying. I mean, it it's influenced her style. It's she's not a clone, but you can see it. Yeah. And you can hear it in the way she approaches the Yes, drums. man. And a little bit of her setup too. A Gretsch drummer. <laughs> yeah. And she doesn't really uh like I said, I would not say she's a clone of Tony Williams. Not yeah. not, not by any stretch of the yeah, right. that would be I an agree. insult. Right, I agree. To her and to Tony. She's yeah. not that. She has her own thing, for sure, uh, and it's completely funky as hell mm-hmm. when she plays funky stuff, and uh, does a lot of great fills. She'll she'll throw you off sometimes. You know those fills will come across the bar line. Mm-hmm. You know, and Liberty does that too. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I've learned uh, through playing with these different drummers. You know, when when someone gets kind of wacky like that and goes across the bar line, they're going to come out. I, I I know to hit the one. You know, <laughs> so it's my job. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, a guy who I play with Cindy with all the time said to me the other day, "I like that when Cindy starts doing going a little wild, man. You know, you nail in the one like that." I'm like, "Yeah, that's yeah, that's my job." You know, but Cindy will. She she's very. Um, she has a lot of rhythm, and a lot of those rhythms. They uh, present themselves in her playing uh, in triplets. She has a lot of triplet stuff going on. Elvin Jones, hmm. you know, there was a lot of triplet information, a lot of mm-hmm. subdivision in the triplet idiom, so to speak. You right, know, right, that right. Afro-Cuban. Right. You know, there's a lot or of that jazz background. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and there's all there's a, there's a triplet thing going on there, right? And um, as well as the sixteenth and eighth note, I mean that's silly to even mention a different, a specific rhythm. But but I, I pick up on some of that, and uh, and she's very good with that ride cymbal thing. If we're blowing some straight ahead thing, you know, w- with playing like Tony did, we'll be like ding 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 It's it's ding 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 turns into ding ding or ding ding ding. You know what I mean? It can be at any given moment instead of ding 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 ding. It could be ding 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 ding. You know what I'm saying? It's okay. just, the accent turns around sometimes. Mm-hmm. You got to be aware. And as a bassist, I'm playing like in a straight time, ding, doom, 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 trying to play, and not on the beat. I try to play forward of the beat so that it's 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 moving forward in a in a sort of a, a linear way. You know, I'm not hitting down beats, down beats, down beats. It's mm-hmm. like they're they're it's 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 just sliding, skating across the time forward. And she when she's playing, she's doing the same thing. Jazz is a very forward thinking mm-hmm. thing, right? And not that right. we're just playing jazz because we play a lot of funk. And she plays with um, uh, what's his name and with the glasses and, and rock. Very good funky guy. Um, what's his name? Come on, man, we know. 
She's hit her. She's been playing with him for years in all the videos. I, I'm not a big fan. Oh, oh, Lenny Kravitz. Lenny Kravitz. Yeah. 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 But uh, she she plays that backbeat thing strong with him. You know, in time, yeah. really. You know, are you gonna go my way? And then, cool. Ooh, you know, she's playing different things. And I remember Newmark told me years ago when when he was. Um, we were talking about jazz, and he was saying, you know, man, I just don't feel that quarter note pulse. I don't feel it. I'm a backbeat guy, man. I, I kind of like play like right in the middle of the beat or behind a little bit, and I and I uh, and I play more, and I I feel that backbeat. Mm-hmm. Doom, doom, bat, boom, boom. I feel that. And when I was doing the Fresh thing, man, it was a, a Sly Fresh album, right, which is sixteenth notes and all that, you yeah. know, all that stuff. He he said I changed. I left that behind because I, I I like that kind of playing, but I prefer bigger eight notes. You know, mm-hmm. I like the ba boom boom, bap boom bap. I like to play bigger fills that are more um, less notes and wider spaces between the notes right. instead of this all that. Right. He went that way, and if you follow his lineage, his career, you'll see that the Fresh album, he never played like that again, really. Interesting. Right? He went into a stronger eight-note big old feel and got that Roxy Music gig and then the John Lennon stuff and all that. You know, they were big beats. They were bigger, rounder fills. And uh, boom, boom, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And he told me about that when he said one time that uh, when he was playing with Joe Vitale, who's another partner of mine, I played with him for years, mm-hmm. Joe and I, and we still play together. Vitale has a big sound. And in those days, and, and Joe and Andy did a record, and the record was with Joe Walsh. And it was two drummers on stage. And he said that, and Andy was really a hot shot back those, in those days on the, uh, the scene, you know, sort of playing sessions. And Vitaly is not really a session guy. He likes to be in the band all the time, right? Okay. He's, he's one of those guys. And he was playing with Walsh a lot. He's on all those hits, you know, all the, all the Joe Walsh mega hits. That's him. Okay. Rocky Mountain Way. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. All, all, all the, the stuff that you know from Joe track. Walsh, mm-hmm. that's Joe Vitale. Okay. Okay. And Joe was with uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash for 30 years until recently. Anyway, uh, so Vitale has a big beat, really big. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's like that Bobby Chouinard thing I was talking about, or, or Newmark. You know, but in those days, this is talking about the early 70s with 72, uh, Andy was coming out of Sly Stone and the Fresh album. And all you drummers, go, go get the Fresh album. It's yeah. important. Uh, so In Time is like a masterpiece. You know what? In Time. Oh, my God. I wish I could play it right now. <laughs> I wish I could just play the song right now and just like laugh about how funky it is. It's yeah. Omar Hakim told me one time we were playing a gig together at the uh, doing a TV show with Patty Austin and we were in the morning we were having our little orange juice and croissant thing and the Today Show at four in the morning sitting around talking about music like we're geeks up about it and uh, he was said that record man Andy that that's he called it and he called it something that was really funky. Oh, that's the compass of funk right there. <laughs> That's the compass of funk. It points to that. Man, you want to yeah. go back to some funk drumming? Go to Sly Fresh. Yeah. And learn in time, you drummers. Yeah. I dare you. I double dog dare you. <laughs> Triple dog dare you. I, I have it I have it on my uh, iPod. We'll pull oh, that out right let's now. Let's pull it out. <laughs> oh my god, we'll do it, man. We'll put it on the thing at the end of the interview. I'll dance out to it. Down, 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 down. All right, so... Uh, Keep talking, man. Okay. i find it. Yeah, good. So Blackman. So she's... Um, Blackman Santana. She is... 
a freer drummer than the guys I've played with and, and, and a couple of girls I play with. Her, her, her time is freer. So my perspective on her, how to play with her, is, is much different from when I play with Liberty, who's pretty free. Liberty, Liberty's pretty broad, wide-open player. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, but, uh, Kenny is real solid and real time-oriented, and but uh, forward of the beat. I say of, of all the drummers, when I play with him, he's on the front side of the beat. Uh, that's where his heartbeat leads him. That's where the time is felt from him, and that's what John Fogarty loves about him. Uh, he loves put being pushed, and sometimes people that play with him think he's, he's rush think he's rushing, but he's not. He's not rushing because I've made many records with the guy, and I always crank the click in my in my earphones. Um, because I, I'm sort of uh, concerned with being the guy who's in time. And uh, if I play just to the click and then we go in the control room and listen to it, like on a Fogarty record or something, uh, he's right banging hard with me, man. His, hit, his kick drum is right in the middle of my ba- bass note. It just feels forward. It's a strange, it's a very strange, it's a very strange phenomenon. He, 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 it feels like he's rushing. And if you, if you know how to play with a guy like that, you can keep it from rushing. Because it's not gonna rush, it just feels like it is. It's yeah. forward, it's forward, right? It, yeah. It's, it's like he's playing. He's, it's it's just a. It's an edgy. Heartbeat. There's energy. There's energy in what what he's doing. It's not pushing. I mean, it's not. You're right. It it feels. It's a feels a little on top, but at the same time, there's just such a great energy. And that when you add the sound with the visual, it's it's awesome. It's pretty amazing, and he's not rushing. That's the thing. He's on top of the beat. There's no doubt about it. I can t- attest to pl- after having played with him for years. Yeah. He is definitely on the front of the beat. And yeah. and it feels like he's rushing some to some people. And I've heard people tell me that. Call me a man, Aronoff, man, he rushes. I'm like, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. He doesn't oh, rush. Man. It's just forward. What happens is everyone starts rushing, thinking that that's where they should play. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't understand and the thing about Fogarty that I think a lot of people know now is that he's a drummer. And he's a very dedicated, I mean, he was, what did he practice for five years straight or something like that to want to try and get to this place that uh, just because he loves playing drums so much. And so there's that relationship that he and Kenny have that it was, we, when I saw you play with him six years ago, maybe. Sitting side stage was just the energy coming off that stage that. was so I, I great. I remember you there. And uh, and and Fogarty was just he was like the audience be damned. He didn't need the audience there. He just needed his band there. You gotta love turn John. around and get get right in Kenny's face and he just loved every oh, minute man, of it. Let me tell you something. He'll turn around, man. Sometimes like with Kenny, and he'll start stomping his foot like a, you're not, you're dragging. <laughs> and we're like, what? That is, he ain't dragging, but he feels it that he's yeah. dragging, because he's he's one of the guys that wants it fast, and and that's why Kenny delivers it that way, and they have this incredible simpatico, this this beautiful uh, synergy, this this wonderful energy together, is because Fogarty feels the wants to be pushed, he wants mm-hmm. he wants to be pushed, but he doesn't want you to rush, mm-hmm. so it, it's a strange thing. Try it sometime. Try playing when you're when you're grooving. Try playing forward, always forward, but keep the click banging in your ears, so you're there, but you're in front. As walking bass in, in jazz is the same. Way, if you're mm-hmm. playing boom, doom, 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 doom on the beat, it sounds horrible. 
it's just like the wrong thing. And the, unless you're playing like, you know, Texas Swing and, and the kick drum is that boom, 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 boom. And you're playing, you doom, doom, doom. Your, your shuffles are like really fat and big on like a, like a Ray Price shuffle, they call it. You're, you're playing boom, 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 boom. But, but in bebop, it's boom, doom, 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 doom. You're, you're on front of the beat because mm-hmm. if you're not, you're, it's, it's not swinging. And that right cymbal, ding, 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 yeah. ding. You, you and the, the bass, if I was a drummer, I'd be listening to that bass player, but Walking his quarter note and playing ding 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 right with that forward bass because you you play forward fills you know you're you're not going to be playing on the beatish things there it's rolling when you guys track deep here when you're tracking like bebop sounding jazz are you playing to a click no absolutely not yeah okay. No, you couldn't do that. That would be horrible. Yeah. God, that would sound so stiff. <laughs> well, back to the three drummers so I can wind it up and make sure you got everything you need. So yeah. I'd say Kenny Aronoff is a powerful drummer. He plays loud, really hard and loud. But uh, of all three, and they all play loud, actually. Cindy's pretty loud. I'd say Liberty's the loudest of the three, without a doubt. Mm. He he is just not a muscle man. He's not. He doesn't have like real big arms and muscles. It's he's kind of slight a little bit, sort of. But somehow, when he hits the drum, it is louder. Like by like even twenty percent. I mean, it's, it's loud. Wow. It's loud and it's big. It, it's it's. He's the drummer that you would want to be on a stadium stage with. Not that Kenny isn't, because Kenny's loud too. Kenny, and you can feel when Kenny hits, it's it's, it's like you can feel the mm-hmm. concussion coming off of the, the, the kit. You know, I used to stand right in front of him, and you can feel he's hitting it hard, man. Sweat dripping in sweat every night. He's athletic. He takes the vitamins and eats the right oh, he things. He does. He does. But I got to tell you, man, Liberty's louder, and it, and and it's not better. Yeah. I'm just discussing the forte, the loudest thing. Yeah. Cindy's loud, and she has more of a whip. Uh, in her drumming but uh at the same time you know it's 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 loud man and but she's a jazz drummer and a funk drummer too and she rocks really hard we got i got some stuff i could play where we're rocking so hard with this guy mickey free it's really rocking and other things but uh, you've got some videos of that there's a great video on yeah so back to aronoff so when he plays uh, when I lock in with him, and I'm I'm playing boom, t- boom, boom on a simple beat, boom, mm-hmm. boom, and he's he's playing his foot is playing in a boom, t- boom, boom. There's a snap at the point, the apex, the actual point that the the beater uh, hits the the head right in the in the time um, spectrum. Uh, that is, would we we'd call that the the uh, place to pl- place your note to place it right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find his to be. Um, and in, in, in this is court. This is this is in the middle of a groove. So I'm I'm remembering this, and I haven't played with him in a while. But uh, I, I find his to be. Uh, it's just this. The relationship between his snare and his kick drum is his uh, kick is a little ahead. Okay. Right. Okay. And uh, uh, whereas Liberty uh, is a very loose player. His thing is like uh, almost wrong, like Ringo. Wrong, you know, like mm-hmm. it's it's right in a, mm-hmm. in a wrong, beautiful way, right? It's it's it'll yeah, be totally. like ring dang doogie fills and shit, right? They're just mm-hmm. like coming around in a weird mm-hmm. way, and then you go, and then he, damn, is he gonna make one? And I'm gonna make it, mm-hmm. and I do, and then he made it, you know. It, mm-hmm. It's it's all How about weird. his relationship kick forward, and snare. Forward, forward as well. The kick is reckless, 
Reckless, unless he's playing a big beat or a train beat. Like we used to do this tune with uh, the Down Easter Alexa that was, uh, you know that tune? Yeah, yeah, it's like a trainy kind of military yeah. beat. And that shit was like really like perfect. I remember we did the Rosie O'Donnell show. We flew all night. We were playing with the Rascals, he and I. We, we were in San Diego. And we flew, uh, took the red eye because we had to do a TV show. We didn't sleep much. Oh. And we got there and we went right to the Rosie show. And we did it. And you can look online. It's on the, it's, okay. a, great, it's a great clip. Billy's playing a harmonica. Uh, what do you call those things? Uh, accordion. Uh, accordion. Yeah. And there's a fiddle player, a girl, a black chick. Uh, what's her name? Fantastic. Oh. She was so wonderful to work with and sweet and quiet, unassuming. She was hired as a session okay. person. And we were, we were playing that. And I, and I was taken by the fact that Liberty was playing without rest and everything because uh, I was tired. Uh, so beautifully in time. On, the, on that specific song, mm. you check it out. Okay. And it's it's okay. It's a very Steve Gaddy kind of. Mm-hmm. And anyway, Liberty's time. So Liberty's time is is like all three of these drummers. Them great. These are great choices. That that was good, man. It was great choices because mm-hmm. the three are so different. Um, Cindy, when she's spanking the kit, man, when she's playing like a real pocket groove and it's straight, you know, like a real good R and B eight note pocket, mm-hmm. uh, she's right on the money. Okay. When she's playing like a freer thing, like a Hendrix tune or something that mm-hmm. we play, mm-hmm. um, there's fills, there's like all kinds of stuff, but the magic is still in the in the quarter note pulse that she's delivering. It's just that well, she's subdividing. It makes me wonder, though, about her is that she's playing into some uh, historical knowledge that she has. When she's playing a Hendrix song, she's honoring a little Mitch Mitchell style and maybe that's she's letting that influence her own speed her own gait her own style the way she let tony williams do it so like she probably and i noticed this about a lot of musicians that have a bit of a jazz background is that if you are a fan of jazz you're a fan of history a lot of uh, a lot of players that maybe are into certain types of pop music or whatever, they know what they like, they're into it. And they maybe like to understand the influences behind it. So not taking anything away from that, but I think that there's a personality trait amongst jazz musicians that they not only love the music, but they love the stories and the history behind it and the personnel that make up that history. And I'm wondering if she's no different. Not that Hendrix is jazz, but she's got to know her history. So you guys play a Hendrix song? She's going to know Mitch Mitchell and his approach and his influences. And of course, that's so easy for her to tap into the Elvin Jones influences that he had yes, and all that stuff. And then, so she's going to be playing a little like Mitch Mitchell just to kind of honor the sound, but it's still, it's 100% her. But yeah, I That's wonder. exactly right. That's that Just, history I was talking about. Yeah, yeah. She showed up at the airport when a gig I recommended her for. That uh, She showed up, it was a Boston Boston gig and it was uh we were playing for a black choir that was for Martin Luther King uh, at a, at a, at a, what is it called a an anniversary of um his involvement in this specific place that we were playing I've forgotten now but I know it was about Martin Luther King and there was a big choir mm-hmm. and, and it was a really and there were actors and dancers and hand drummers and you know this sort of um, afrocentric um, musical situation 
and, mm-hmm. she, and I called her because I thought she'd be right for it. And um, my friend Jim Papoulis was is a conductor in New York, and he was putting it together. And so they, she flew. He flew me from here, and she um, from uh, New York. We went to Boston and did it. Anyway, uh, so she was playing, and she sight read the gig. She's a great reader, and so is Kenny. Man, Kenny Aronoff. I'm going to talk about a reading drummer. Yeah, best reader I've ever encountered. Really? That's awesome. Oh my God! Anybody know about that? You guys know Kenny Aronoff is reading his ass off on stage. I know he he writes all the time. He's writing his charts all the time, and they're very thorough. Yes. So it doesn't surprise me at all. Man, he writes his Fogarty grooves out. No foul language, please. Oh. I see what you're saying. <laughs> he wrote out the top line, the middle line, the toms, the kick yeah, drum parts. Not chord symbols or whatever you would call flow chart here, like like you and I, some drummers would write eight, mm-hmm. 16, mm-hmm. you know, different feel part change. For part. He writes the thing, man. Yeah. And 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 he reads it like on a session. Mm-hmm. You know, he's reading that. You know, the things that you're hearing, the, these legendary records that he's made. That's he's. I guarantee you, he was reading it because it doesn't sound like it, though. No. You know, I see the wheels turning in his head sometimes. He doesn't have hair to hide it, <laughs> but it's like six. Okay, yep. I can see him doing that. We all do when we're reading, but after you do it so much, yeah, he's good. He reads it, man. He's reading it because it's a lot to remember, and I think it's freeing at some time uh, in the process to be on on a session or or a live gig. And he's playing with uh, Don was on all these big gigs where he'll back up Sting or uh, uh, you know you've seen him McCartney come out and do a tune. Mm-hmm. You can't just remember that. They're only you only have one rehearsal so sound check. Yeah, if that. If, and have if that, and you're, everyone's tired, and he flew in, and man, we, you know, just read it. So he's writing. I saw him write out the Sticks gig in the back of a van. We were riding, and he was on headphones, and I was, of course, I play around. We, we used to be such buddies, and we still are, but you know, road dogs together, and I, I headlocks and all the crazy stuff, you know, like kids. But he got, a, he was like, nah, I'm, I'm, work. I'm trying to work, but he would, <laughs> he would take his headphones off and laugh about a few things. But back, you know, he'd be riding, and yeah. he, and it was, and I said, what are you riding, man? You know, it's trying to bother him, like yeah. a brother was yeah. bother another brother, you know. Poking him and stuff, or like he'd be right, and I hit his elbow, and he writes a stab. Stop! <laughs> like hard on the leg, to be a bruise there for a week, you know. Right. That's oh funny. man, he grabbed me by the neck. Tell me real quick about um, Cindy Blackman at Cindy. the gig. At the at that gig. Oh yeah, the, um, Martin Luther King. The Martin Luther thing. King gig. She read her ass off. She did. She was great on the gig. Now, what was the point I was trying to make? What were we talking about? There was Cindy. Cindy is versatile. And she can play a lot of different things and has studied the history of music. And you were mentioning Mitch Mitchell and all that stuff. So uh, what was required of this music was uh, playing with a choir uh, is difficult. You know, you're playing a certain way. Mm-hmm. And there was also very specific parts to be played, and she read those. And I was impressed and proud of her. And I, and I remember I, – and I was reading too because the, the guy writes every bass line out and, uh, and drum parts. And she had these big, you know, long pages, and was reading it. And I and I thought, whew, made the good call there because we we hadn't really been talking about that. I see. And one time she called me once to do a. Uh, she called me to play with Patrice Russian and herself and, um, so Vernon Reed, and uh, oh, wow. he's a great guitar player. 
and we went and did this gig, and uh, I'm trying to remember. I might be missing messing that up. Oh, someone's mowing my lawn out there. Um, anyway, so Cindy can read. She can play all styles, and she knows her jazz history. She knows a lot of the, the beginning of, of the jazz thing, and she knows about uh, the jazz singers, Sarah Vaughn. I remember her telling me about Sarah Vaughn one time and singing. Uh, I said, what are you listening to? We were walking along. She goes, she put the headphones in. It was a Sarah Vaughn thing, and so she was listening to Sarah sing, and uh, everything it, uh, lends itself to other people. You know, like there's a, there's a lineage that you can follow. You can learn Sinatra, and you can learn all those melodies from Sinatra, see? You can learn those Broadway show tunes because Sinatra sang those Broadway show tunes so simply and beautifully and with lyrics so you could know what Stella by Starlight sounded like with a singer singing it and then... When you play it on the bandstand with, uh, you know, Mike Stern and some people like that, and they're not playing this like Sinatra's played it, but, but you hear the song in your head, you mm-hmm. know, I you know, know what I mean. I so there's a le- so you have to learn all this information. Yeah. You should learn the lyrics to songs. Liberty DeVito told me that. Man, I play to the lyrics. I was like, you do really? He's, doesn't he sing everything? Yeah, he kind of does. Yeah. yeah. Well, we went we went on a, on a walk one day, um, Liberty DeVito and myself, and and he was saying that. Uh, you know, I stopped in a music store and picked up a book that was about reading, and I was reading, you know, practicing in my hotel room all the time because I'm a nut that way. And uh, and he was like, man, what do you need to read for? You don't need to fucking read. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I do. And he was like, no, man, it ain't about the reading. You don't read it. You feel it. I play to the lyrics, he said. Liberty. Yeah. I play to the lyrics. He kept saying that. And I said, I said, well, you know what, man? What happens if you do a session and there's no lyricist there? There's no singer there. Yeah. What do you do then when you got to lay down a track and there's nobody singing? Mm-hmm. How do you, how, what, what lyric do you play to? Mm-hmm. You never heard the song before. They're going to lay a bed for a singer to come in later. What are you, what are you playing to? I'm just, mm-hmm. what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> New York style. Right, right. There's something cool about being off the kick drum, mm-hmm. not with the kick drum. Sometimes it's great to be nailing, boom, 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 and that's rock and roll. But you know what, man? Years ago on a, on a session, Omar Akim and I were doing this thing, and he said to me, and I and I said, uh, I said to him, "Hey, man, like, uh, you know what? I was just playing boom, ba boom, boom, ba boom, but you were playing boom, boom, boom. Is that cool?" And we were on the it was a TV thing, and he goes. Yeah, that's totally cool. And and I said, so so you know, I'm not with you. Like you're going boom, t- boom, boom, and I'm going boom, t- ba boom, and and so mm. it's boom, ba boom. It's like the there's a little flam thing going on there. But I like it, man. And he's yeah, like, yeah. yeah, I like it too. Yeah, do that. That's cool. And so that you get the okay from a guy like that, and you're like, okay, yeah, yeah. So that means that I can do other things like that. So I don't really have to hit the kick drum with this cat. You know what I'm saying? He's hip enough to understand that if I miss it and play across the kick drum or or mm-hmm. without, if I let the kick drum go. Oh, and I love that sound on a session. Just stop playing. I let the kick drum hit, boom, and then then play a note or in and around it and mm-hmm. get slinky. Man, because the kick drum, if it's mic'd well, can be a beautiful artistic statement right in the middle of a thing. You know, yeah, sound all its own. Boom! Ah, yeah, yeah. wow, that's crippling. It's so funky and it feels so good. Kick drum, if it's mic'd well, yeah. like on Bob Bob Claremountain when he mics the kick drum or something like that, mm-hmm. and you hear it's got a snap on it, and it's got this underlying resonance and all that. Mm-hmm. And, and years ago, uh, Steve Cropper and I were on a session, and he said to me, um, he was producing it. He goes, "Hey man, come here a minute, man. Let me show you something." I said, "What?" He goes, "Look at this." He stood me right between the two speakers. He goes, "You hear how the kick drum and your bass part are working?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." He goes, "You see, I've got how I've got the." 
bass down underneath your kick, the kick drum, but there's a snap on the kick drum, and then the bass has got the sub sound underneath mm-hmm. there, right. and the kick drum, and when, when you guys hit together, but, but there's also a low resonance under the kick drum that, that's beneath it. He, 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 these guys hear this stuff, these engineers and producer types, these mm-hmm. hit makers. You know, like if you hear a uh, um, boom, 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 mm-hmm. boom, that song with Otis. Sitting on the dock of the dock bay. Of the bay. You, you, you listen to it, man, and you, you know, there's a lot more that went into that than just you. He, he had only a few mics on the kit, kit he told me, and they, and they were, one was about, uh, I guess it was about uh, this distance from me to you, maybe would that be six feet, and it was in the center of the room, wasn't close mic, the kick drum, and then he had one on the snare drum, and, and like sort of like placed like this, and I had a, well, I had a guy named David Z came, come over here one time, produced us Purple Rain, and he, um, you know, engineered it, I mean, and, he, and he, uh, he, he had, he hung a mic behind the drummer, like that, it was catching the the drum set, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, one one like we could we talked about Cropper, and he said, "Yeah, man, like I like the crop, Cropper thing too." So he had right here in my house. It was great drum sound. He had the kick drum. I wish we could talk about it out there, but it, it was far away, as opposed to that close tight thing. Yeah, it, uh, it picked up some of the ring of the kick, uh, the, the toms, and some of the room and the resonance of the room. And like I have an acoustic guitar hanging out there, and it's rattling and stuff, and it's it's in the sound. So the the the, the actual kick drum is like a it's like a breathing thing. Uh-huh. It's this breathing beautiful thing. I mean, whereas if you're up close on something, it's a tighter thing. Yeah. So you know, miking your your drums is a kind of a deep concept. So oh, what do yeah, you do? Yeah. You listen to everybody and study from them all. Learn from mm-hmm. Bob Claremont and learn from Steve Cropper, learn from the newest guys, the guys, the guy in town, Richard Dodd, who does the Petty record, that Wallflower, Wallflowers record. The bass drum on that is ridiculous. Mm. Here's a quick story. Ferroni and I were recording. Might have been on your session, dude. Really? It might have been on a session there because we were at Blackbird yeah. and we were in the room and in came George Massenberg, who's a very famous guy. He's done, he invented all kinds of stuff for recording, like Mike Pree's compression. He's famous for recording. And he has a room over there that's the wildest room in the world. You walk in this room at Blackbird, and there's sticks on the wall in varying lengths and sizes and like uh, dimensions and with uh, relation to one another for diffusion. And it's like, like millions of dollars worth of pieces of wood on the wall. Wow. Ridiculous. You walk in the room, and you get nauseous. I mean, because you... Everything changes. There's no mm-hmm. reverb. There's no sound. It's just a dry, undiffuse-heavy uh, d- uh, room. So the, he brought me, he came running in there, and he goes, Ferroni! Because he had done the average white band stuff back in the day as an engineer. Holy moly. And, and Ferroni played with the average white band, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. yeah. And so it was before the Clapton days and before the, the, the Tom Petty and the Miles and whatever he did, Screedy Politi and all that stuff, and Duran Duran. He, he, was with, he was with the average white band on yeah. four or five big records. Yeah. So he, Massenberg was the engineer. Man, you got to – he goes, come on, man. So I tagged along. The <laughs> two of us went in this room, and John McBride came in, the owner of the studio. Blackbird Studios, the biggest studio in Nashville, maybe one of the best studios in the world, right? I would say. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I'd put it up in the top five studios in the yeah. world. And we go in there, and he played Sgt. Pepper's. And the two of us sat right in front of the, between the speakers. And these guys are winking at each other and laughing and giggling like what they're going to do to us, you know, by playing this to, to a bass player and drummer. Guys with histories like us that have played on a million records and rock and roll, mm-hmm. crazy stages mm-hmm. and everything. And we're sitting in a 
ready to hear it, man. And we look back and they're like, you know, like giggling a little bit about it. Yeah, play a, you want to play the Queen thing for him or the, let's do, play Sergeant Pepper. Yes, sir. So we play, he plays Sergeant Pepper and we listen to it. And you can hear those drums, man. You can hear it. It sounded like Ringo was sitting right there, man. The kick drum, like I'm talking, that mm-hmm. sound. It was all, I think it was kind of panned all right to the right. But I'm listening to it. And it was meaning more to him, to Ferroni, than me on this specific uh, discussion because it was about Ringo. So then we listened a little more. We played some Queen stuff, and we we packed up and went home. And I had to give Steve a ride to his hotel. He was, you know, on the road. So I picked up, I got my car. Ferroni jumps in. We drive to the hotel. The drive was a good long, you know, 15, 20-minute drive, and he didn't say a word the whole way. Not one sound came out of his mouth, and I was just letting him be in his little world and drove him toward the hotel. And as we started to get close to the hotel, I said, man, you're quiet, man. What's going on? Everything all right? And he goes, hmm? What? I said, "Um, no, you were just a little quiet. I just, you all right? He goes, Ringo's kick drum. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I said. That's all he said. And I just went, yeah. And I drove in. He jumped out, gave me a hug. And that was it. All the next morning he flew out. And I went about my business. But, yeah, the sound the sound of the kick drum was ridiculous. And, you know, we're all trying to leave a mark, you know. And then Ringo left a big one, man. I know. And he left a big one. Yeah, it's so great. And now he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Which is, yeah. I love that Ringo story. Okay, Ringo it is. David, thank you so much, man. Love you, man. I appreciate it. You too. It was awesome. Welcome to Nashville. Thank you. Great, Thank you. man. Great. So much. Okay. Beautiful. So there you go. There's our interview with David. I want to thank David for taking the time to sit down and talk to us. His stories really reinforce the idea of hard work and perseverance. And uh, we just, again, appreciate the time that he took to uh, sit down and talk to us. I uh, also want to make sure that I thank Mike Jackson again for his help. Uh, all the camera work uh, that he's been helping me with to get ready for our new YouTube channel. So um, keep an eye out for that. And uh, thanks again, Mike, for your help with that and the audio content as well. So again, thanks for listening. Uh, please uh, keep in touch with us, and I hope to see you around. <laughs>